And we're almost done. Chapter 4, what does he say? See 4 verse 1, he says, I therefore, Paul therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk, some of the translations will say live, but to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. God's called you to this now, walk in a manner worthy. Walk as Christ's man, do it in a worthy way. In 4, 1 to 6, he says, be united. And then in verse 7, he says, God's given... Um, gifts to his people, 4.11, he lists what the gifts are. The gifts given to his people are actually people who speak God's word. Verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. In other words, to equip God's people to serve one another for the building up of the body of Christ. And what's the aim? To bring Christ's church to maturity. And what does maturity look like? Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. In other words, maturity is standing firm in what you know. And what does that look like? Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Now, you speak the truth in love and grow up to be, grow up into Jesus. And so here's my question for you, gentlemen. Do you actually want to live a life like that? And my guess is, like, oh, let me ask you, it's great to see you. But why are you here on a, on a Tuesday night listening to some baldy-headed Australian? Uh, teach the, I'll tell you why, I'm assuming you're all volunteers. Uh, I can't see anybody tied down or strapped to seats or whatever. Uh, why are you here? I'll tell you why. It's because the Spirit of God is at work in your life. Now, for some of us, the Spirit of God may be just kind of beginning to stir and you're wondering, what's this all about, this Christianity? The Spirit of God's beginning in your life. And for others of us, the Spirit of God has got hold of you. And the Spirit of God will move you to want to serve Jesus and want to be like him. And as you read Ephesians, I hope it will get you motivated to do that, um, uh, to do it again. At least eight times during these six chapters, the Apostle Paul talks about the work of the Spirit in the life of the believer. And what are you expecting? Well, um, here's really quick, like chapter 1, he says um, God's Spirit will, will seal you like a deposit that will hold on to you. He'll hold on to you till the Lord returns or you go to be with him. In chapter 2, you pray because you have access to God through his Spirit. Um, in chapter 2, verse 22... Um, God's Spirit lives with His people. Chapter 3, God's Spirit strengthens His people. Chapter 4, the Spirit gives unity among His people. Um, chapter 4, verse 30, we'll see later on tonight. If you, if you live the wrong way, it grieves God's Spirit to see that. Um, 5.18, tomorrow night, we'll see the Spirit of God brings thankfulness, puts joy and a song in your heart. Um, 6, verse 18, pray through the Spirit at all times. The Spirit of God will move you to want to become like Jesus. And so I'm not going to just beat you around the ears and say, oh, you know, here's the rules, do this, do this. They're saying the Spirit of God will move you to want to do this. Isn't that a miracle? I mean, I talk to guys about Jesus. I talk to, I talk to a couple of blokes that I love about Jesus. And, I, and it's like this teddy bear eyes. They don't, it doesn't, if you want to be like Jesus, the Spirit of God is at work in your life. And so what does he say? How do you, what does it look like? Okay, ready? Now that was about eight minutes. Sorry, right. if I've lost you, come back. We're now on the little booklet. And all the little booklet is, is 
the text of Ephesians printed out and just divide it up, okay? Uh, it's the English Standard Version, the ESV. Uh, why? Because it's a, it's a good, accurate translation. Um, it can be a little bit clunky. It reads a little bit like, well, as my son said, Dad, this can read a bit like it's translated by Yoda. You know, ooh, sentences backwards they are. Hard to read sometimes. Um, uh, it can be a little bit clunky, but that's because it's accurate. Okay, so that's why I've gone for that. All it is is the text of Ephesians divided up. Now, what does he say? Have a look at 4, 17 and 19. He's saying, okay, you want to become Christ's man and live his way, yes. But what you've got to do is this. Don't live like the Gentiles or the nations. Live the Christian life. And verses 17 to 19 talk about the way the Gentiles or the pagans live. And then verses 20 to 24 talk about the Christian life. So let's have a look. What does he say about the, the Gentiles or the pagans or those who do not know God? 4 verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Don't live or literally walk the way the Gentiles or the nations do. The word there, the ESV's got the word futility. Very interesting word. It's the Greek word matiates. And um, if you've ever read the Old Testament, the book of Ecclesiastes, um, a lot of the English translations go for the, the, the Ecclesiastes says again and again, life is meaningless, meaningless. And when, when the, they came to translate the book of Ecclesiastes out of Hebrew into Greek, they used this word, matiates, uh, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher in Ecclesiastes. He's saying here, people live this, these meaning, meaningless, empty well, the word matiates means useless, futile, empty. Meaningless, meaningless. And you know, it's not to think that we are superior because if we can see this, it's only the Spirit of God is at work in our life and we did nothing to deserve it. But in my country, so many people live lives that really are just empty. It's read the trashy magazines and get drunk on weekends and not think too much about anything. Do you know the average Kiwi watches television, I checked this on the net just the other day, the average Kiwi watches television 21 hours a week. 21 hours, three hours a day. 21 hours. And you know what's worse? The average Aussie watches TV 22 hours a week. (laughs) 22 hours a week. You know what's even worse? In the USA and the UK, and aren't POMs a slow-moving target, um, in the USA and the UK, they watch television an average of 28 hours a week. Four hours a day. If If you just take that as time when you're actually awake, that is three months a year. Every waking hour for three months a year, I'm just watching television. Empty. Um, or the trashies. You know, the, um, you know, Brad Pitt, Father's Alien Baby. You know those ones that are always um, kind of at the supermarket checkouts or whatever. Um, or there's a four-month-old one in the dentist whenever you go there or whatever. Um, you think, man, how can anyone be stupid enough to buy that? Um, Women's Day and New Idea in Australia run together a million, almost a million copies every time they print. What? And... Not only that, in my city, in Sydney, there's a couple of new kinds of porn that have come out. 
right? There's, you know, ordinary good old-fashioned porn, right? But there's, there's now food porn, which is um, in the papers and magazines and in the television. It's kind of this pornography all about food. And there's real estate porn as well that's kind of get delivered whenever you buy the paper. And it's just, that's the meaning of life, isn't it? Food and real estate. Look at verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. You see, I know I, I kind of make, make light of it, but it shouldn't bring any joy, but they're darkened in their understanding. Um, I just meet people who don't like to think about the fact that they're going to die. Well, in Sydney, the mortality rate hovers around 100%. I would have thought it was kind of worth having to think about it. But it, no, why would you want to think? Because of why? Because alienated, because of the ignorance or perhaps ignorance and hardness of heart. And it gets worse. You see verse 19, they become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. There's nothing wrong with enjoying life and enjoying our senses. It's when you're dominated by it that it gets ugly. In the ancient world, the worship of the gods involved fertility rites and cultic prostitution, all that kind of thing. The, the cities of Corinth and other seaports were dominated by it. Um, and we live in a world that's driven by sensuality and, and, a, and a darkness that's, that's glamorised. And I, you know, I get, get glimpses of it now and then. I took the kids on a holiday to America a few years ago uh, and we went to Las Vegas to have a look um, and we stayed in the kind of subtly understated Excalibur. You've seen that one, the kind of the King Arthur's castle thing and anyway so I'm, we thought we'd walk out and have a look at the kind of the strip in Las Vegas and I walked out of the Excalibur with uh, one of my daughters, I think it was uh, daughter number two who would have been then about 17 I guess on my arm I walked out and there's a little Latino guy there handing out leaflets well I've done enough leafleting I just I take a leaflet uh not to be impolite so I'm walking past taking the leaflet from him and, and Beth's gone dad said all oh, right I've looked down and it's it's kind of an A5 leaflet for a um um strip club um uh and um you, you kind of know what I mean and so I'm uh and I'm thinking okay uh I have a leaflet in my hand that I do I commit the sin of litter or the sin of lust? And I'm, so I dropped it on the ground and I looked and the whole pavement was just paved with porno that these guys have been handing out. And Beth looked around and said, Dad, it's like Disneyland but evil. And that's what it is. And you go in the, in the night time and it looks all glossy and glamorous and bubbly and alight and drive past in the daytime and you see how seedy and evil and you see the homeless people and the shattered dreams and or you walk through parts of Bangkok which I have with Kathy um, my wife and 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 there are men who will come up to you with with a menu a menu of terrible things that these little Asian ladies will do for you for a few dollars why because we're rich and they're poor and we know it's wrong and yet sex tourism by wealthy Western men is huge thing in their economy and we become callous to it you see what the ESV's put um, greedy to practice every kind of impurity if you have an NIV bible it'll say and a continual lust for more now Paul's not saying that every non-christian person is like this not at all 
Um, no, no, what's he saying? This is the character of the world that we live in. You, you walk past a newsstand, what are the best-selling magazines all about? Materialism, gossip, lust. You walk into a video shop, what are all the movies about? Lust, violence, gossip, revenge. And we, we grow callous to it. Now, it sounds like, you know, I'm kind of pulpit-thumping and negative and everything, but I want to ask you, you think, why? Why does God say no to this? Answer is this. In every case of, of sensuality and lust and exploitation and whatever, someone is getting damaged. All those little ladies in Bangkok, they're all someone's daughter. All the girls that get used, all the, it's, someone's getting damaged, and God says he hates it, and we mustn't live that way now what does it look like to follow jesus see verse 20 he says but and don't live that way how should we live verse 20 but this is not the way you learned christ he says assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires literally what he says he's like rid yourself or put off um, your old self or literally the old man it's kind of like your old nature um, so in other places, he calls it, uh, Galatians 5, he talks about um, the flesh versus the spirit, you know, old nature, new nature. And notice what he says, the old nature with its deceitful desires. That is, the old nature, the, one, the nature that doesn't follow Jesus, it tells us things that aren't true. It tells us things that aren't true. And what are we to do? Verse 23, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Be renewed uh, and put on the new self, right, the new man, uh, created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. See verse 23, isn't it? be renewed. He doesn't say renew yourself. It's the idea of walk with, you know, as you put it together, walk with God, let God cooperate with God renewing you through his spirit and be renewed how? The spirit of your mind. Your, your mind matters. You know, there's people who say, oh, you are what you eat. No. You are what you think. And if you look, um, mind's mentioned in verse 20, what you learned, verse 21, you were taught, verse 23, a renewed mind. So literally what he's saying is like, go with a new man and get your mind rewired. Learn to think. Learn to think. But what will it look like? If you're really going to be fed income about following Jesus, what would it look like? You know, how would you be um, you know, a hero of the faith? How would you really live it out, get serious? Well, Kathy and I um, were on a holiday. By the way, I'm not always on holidays. This is just a few holidays. Okay. Right. Kathy and I had this holiday a few years ago. We went to um, Egypt and we got to go out to Mount Sinai, which, uh, which was fun. And, and near Mount Sinai is St. Catherine's Monastery. And it's been going since like, oh, I don't know, third or fourth century, something like that. And you think, now, now those guys, they take following Jesus really seriously. There's about 25 monks who live in this monastery. Like, yep, okay, they're heroes of the faith. But outside of St. Catherine's Monastery, kind of just in the desert, a few hundred metres away, is this little kind of stone shack where this guy must be like super monk or something because he lives on his own. He's in this little stone house, just tiny, kind of three phone booths, I guess, little stone house and with a little garden and, and two or three goats tied up. And, and that's kind of super monk's house. Now, he must really be a hero of the faith, don't you think? No, not at all. Too easy, really. First of all, he's not married, okay? Hasn't got a wife, hasn't got a mother-in-law, okay? He hasn't got toddlers, so he probably gets to sleep. Um, He hasn't got teenagers, so he probably gets to sleep. 
He hasn't got a commute to work. He hasn't got a boss who's an idiot. He hasn't got workmates who are lazy. He hasn't, in fact, all he's got to worry about is three goats. And way too easy. Now, what's my point? Living out the Christian life happens in the way you treat other people in the ordinary things of life. Okay? What does it look like to really follow Jesus? It's not out in the desert with three goats. It's in the middle of how you treat other people in the ordinariness of life. And what you'll see if you look down from, um, from 4 verse 25, Paul gives four, um, no, sorry, six, six different examples of how you live out the Christian life. And what I'm going to do, we'll see how we go time-wise tonight, is have a look at those six. So you got me? This isn't just a list of rules, do this, do this, do this. How will the Spirit of God be moving you to live and how do you become who you are now that you follow Jesus? All right, let's, let's have a look. Uh, what's he say, for example, about the truth? Um, verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbour, for we are members of one another. You ever noticed, you can, have a, you can have an argument or a fight with somebody and it's not too hard to patch it up. You basically forgive each other and kind of, you know, you can have a, you can have a blue. But, but if somebody lies to you, it's very hard to undo that. Why? Because relationships are built on trust. And lying undermines trust like nothing else. Someone lies to you, or you can, yeah, you can forgive them, but very hard to build the trust again. Uh, you know, as we grew up, sorry, as Kathy and I had the kids growing up, we'd teach them, yeah, disobedience is bad, but lying about it is much worse. And notice he says we're, why, particularly, particularly as you speak to your Christian uh, brothers and sisters in the church and so on, if you're involved in that, um, why we're members of one another. Now, it doesn't mean you can't be diplomatic and so on how you speak things, the truth in love, but we need to be men who speak the truth. That's one. Second one, look at um, verse 26, anger. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Okay. Now, is it wrong to get angry? Mm, no. How do we know? Well, Jesus himself got angry. At least twice. Uh, Mark chapter 3, John chapter 2. What, Mark chapter 3, Jesus gets angry because the religious leaders are so hard-hearted. They use this poor bloke with a crippled up hand and uh, they just use him for bait. And Jesus is angry. Why? Love your neighbour as yourself. Right. Uh, John chapter 2, they've turned God's temple into a marketplace and they're using it to, and they're dishonouring God and, and ripping off their neighbours. Interesting, Jesus gets angry about love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, love your neighbour as yourself. And me, when do I get angry? Sometimes it's a, a blocked goal. Or often it's that my expectations aren't met. And I get angry over the wrong things. You know, so I hear about a, you know, genocide in Africa. And I think, yeah, that's, that's a real pity. And then Kathy's late home with a car and I need to go out. And I'm furious. Uh, just, yeah. James chapter 1, James says this. Know this, my beloved brothers... Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. 
You notice uh, verse 26, he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Now that means we can be angry a lot longer in summertime, doesn't it? Because, especially here. Like it doesn't get dark till about 10 o'clock. So you've got several hours more anger that you can... Uh, or you move to Greenland, you'd be angry for six months. I don't know. So you know it's not what it is, isn't it? Don't brood on it. Deal with it. Deal with it. Don't, um, don't brood on it. Uh, Kent Hughes, in his uh, little uh, commentary on Ephesians, quotes a man called Friedrich uh, Buchner. Listen to this. He says, Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savour to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. And he's right. Anger in the end consumes us. You brood on it, you let it fester, you... Man, it easily turns into self-righteousness and, and we'll come to the issue of bitterness soon enough. You know what, for me though, um, and I look around, some of you guys are kind of hitting, just nudging middle age... Uh, for me, it's not white hot righteous anger. You know, it's just it's just middle age background grumpy. Now it's not my fault. It's just in the last five years, the whole world is just full of idiots. I don't know why. Just like, and if you can identify with that, stop it. Like I should. It's just hard to live with, and it's selfish. And what we need to realise is we're not that important. Okay, not that important. Let it go. Read Romans chapter 12, which says, don't, uh, don't take revenge, my friends. Leave it to God. He's the judge. Let it go through to the keeper and let God sort it out. And I know I'm, I'm grumpy and cranky half the time and poor old Kathy has to put up with it and she shouldn't have to. And if you're married, stop it. All right. I think I can say that because I've fessed up as well. All right. Okay. We just need to realise the world doesn't revolve around us. It's not rocket science, is it? Okay, what about, um, let me see, we've got time. Yeah, okay, stealing and its opposite. Um, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labour, doing honest work with his own hands, so that you may have something to share uh, with anyone in need. You know, if you've ever been robbed, uh, and, and I've been robbed a few times, mainly out of our people who broken into our cars and stolen stuff, I'm always surprised at how kind of personal it is. You think, oh yeah, it's only, it's only possessions. Yeah, man, but when someone steals it, it's really personal. Okay, and what's, what's it saying? It's the Eighth Commandment, don't steal. Don't take that for granted either. If you don't have solid property rights, you cannot have the creation of wealth. People will not invest money in the future. You won't have the creation of wealth. Um, and, and see, Ephesians goes further than the Eighth Commandment. It's saying not only should you not take what's not yours, you should be generous to those in need. Okay, I'll keep moving on. Uh, what about number D, about the way we speak? You ever, um, <laughs> you ever been fishing and you go, uh, you know, prawns or mullet gut or um, mullet fillets or whatever it is and you've got them in a, in a container and you get home and it's late at night and I never catch anything so you just throw your gear in the shed and kind of... And then two or three weeks later you kind of pull out the, the half a bucket of prawns that you put in there, all right, and it's... Oh, uh, that's the idea that's in um, 4.29 about our mouths. Paul says, let no corrupting, the idea is rotten, 
no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. And you know, you can, we can be guilty of it, and there's some blokes I can think of that, like, yeah, they open their mouth, and so often what comes out is just like that, the kind of, you know, rotten prawns or those, um, you know, those kind of soft, gooey, turned black capsicums that are in the bottom of the crisper in the fridge. You should call it the rotter, actually, because that's where they sit, and they go rotten. And, and our mouths can be like that because cynicism and bitterness and... Some men speak like a water polo game. And the way a water polo game is, works, how do I lift myself up? I reach out and push you down. And blokes speak badly of people and pull them down and so on. And, and our language matters, gentlemen. Our language matters. Do you want to know what someone is like inside, in their heart? Jesus says what we like inside in our heart bubbles out of our mouth. Um, Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, Jesus says this, For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. How about that for insight? I'll read it again. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words they will be acquitted, and sorry, by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. I don't think it's like God sitting up there saying, Oh, cussed again, cussed again, and seven today. No, it's more what you are just bubbles out your mouth. He's saying you'll give account of your words because it shows who we are. And look at verse 29, he says, um, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up and fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear, to lift people up. And one I have a tender conscience about is, uh, let me share it with you, is, uh, is gossip. And it's not just the women who do it. And what's gossip? Gossip is speaking ill of someone who's not present. It's the water polo game when they're not there. Um, Stephen Covey, who wrote, uh, wrote that book, Seven Habits of uh, Highly Effective People, he's got another book out, The Eighth Habit. Uh, the Eighth Habit is always write a sequel to a good-selling book. Um, uh, listen to what he says. He's talking about here about relationships and about um, putting deposits into the bank of trust with people. How do you show people that you're trustworthy? He says this, Being loyal to those not present is one of the most difficult of all deposits. Now, isn't it an interesting way to reverse gossip? Being loyal to those not present. It's one of the highest tests of both character and the depth of bonding that has taken place in a relationship. This is particularly the case when everyone seems to be joining in on bad-mouthing and piling on someone who is not present. You can, in an unself-righteous way, just speak up and say, I see it differently, or my experience is different. Or you may have a point, let's go and talk with him or her about it. By doing so, you instantly communicate that integrity is loyalty, not just to those absent, but you also communicate it to those present. Whether they acknowledge it or not, all people present will inwardly admire and respect you. They will know that their name is precious with you when they're not there. And the thing to remember, gentlemen, is if someone will gossip to you, they'll gossip about you. And we need to be men who don't do that. Why does it matter? Well, 
Look at 4 verse 30. Isn't it an interesting thing for Paul to say? He says, the way we speak matters. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Uh, the Holy Spirit is not an it. You must never talk about the Spirit as it. The Spirit is him. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus who lives within us. And he's saying the way that we act and the way that we speak, if we speak the wrong way, it can grieve the Spirit of Jesus. You know, I, you know, I, I grieve when I hear Christians, I feel bad when I do about myself, you know, my, I do it myself. I, I, I grieve when I hear Christians bad-mouthing each other or, or churches divided over people speaking ill of each other and so on. And man, if it grieves me, how much more does it grieve the Lord Jesus? He, he died and rose again so that we can live the right way. So don't, he's saying, don't, don't grieve Jesus in the way that, you, the way that we live. Uh, you notice um, anger, don't give the devil a foothold, deal with it. Don't, don't give him the opportunity to grab hold of that bitterness, don't let him get a, a foothold. So the devil's there, don't grieve the spirit of God. We actually, we live in a spiritual world. It's not just, it's not morality, right? Not just morality, it's spiritual world. Spirit of God and the evil one are there. I'll keep pushing on. Bitterness. See what he says um, in verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamour, uh, the word clamour, you can translate it as uh, shout or outcry or screaming, okay? Um, all wrath, anger and clamour and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Now, what are you, what's the difference? You've got bitterness and malice. What's the difference between bitterness and malice and anger? Here's, here's what I think, and that is, when someone does something wrong to you, anger's there and it's kind of hot and immediate, yeah, right? But if you don't deal with that anger and it cools down a bit, it turns into, very quickly, it turns into bitterness and malice. And you can carry that around and suck on it for years. And this kind of low-level background resentment. And gentlemen, uh, Paul's saying, let it go. Let it go. Let it go to God who will deal, who's, who's just. Let it, let it go through to the keeper. What's the alternative? See verse 32. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another, just as in Christ God forgave you. Now, it's worth thinking about, isn't it? What does it mean to forgive someone? And why is it so hard? Uh, thought, thought lots about this. What, what's forgiveness all about? See, if you, if you wrong me, then I have a kind of a, a moral right, really, to hurt you back, don't I? So I'm just going to... So you wrong me, it's kind of the eye for the eye, tooth for tooth. I, I've got a moral right to hurt you back. Forgiveness is saying... I will not hurt you back. I, won't, I will not punish you for this. And that's why it's hard, because the person who is wronged has to absorb that pain, really. You have to suck it up. And so forgiveness always costs. What does it cost, the Lord, what does it cost God to forgive us? The death of his son, so that he can still be just. And the forgiveness that we bring to people, it will cost now, it's not the same as, as like pretending it never happened. It's not the same as saying there's no consequences. Someone might do the wrong thing to you uh, and so you might forgive them. That is, I won't punish you back. 
but you may choose wisely to never give them the opportunity to hurt you again in that way. Or you may realise there's a character fault that they have so that you won't put them in that place of temptation again and so on. So there can be consequences, but forgiveness is saying, I will not punish you for this. And it costs. And what's the motivation? See, 5 verse 1, he keeps going, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Do you need to forgive someone? Do you need to decide you'll let it go? It's not, it's also, it's not saying that it didn't matter. It's not the same as saying it never happened. Romans 12 says, let it go. God has got it. He'll, he's the judge. He's just. He'll handle it. Let it go. Learn to forgive. Okay, the last one. Number six. Um, about our attitudes to sex and how we think about sex and so on. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness and covetous just means being greedy. Um, impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints, among God's people. So the sexual immorality translate that's the, the Greek word porneia, which just kind of covers all sorts of sexual sin and so on. Um, and he's saying sexual sin just it shouldn't happen among the people of God. Um, and the idea of the impurity uh, or, or uncleanness, right, and the way we behave about sexuality and the covetousness I actually think he's talking about uh, greed, not so much about money here, but greed in the area of sex and sexuality, I think. Because um, it's interesting, the 10th commandment, you shall not covet or you shall not be greedy, links them. So the 10th commandment, you know, you shall not covet your neighbour's donkey house, but particularly, you shall not covet your neighbour's wife. Don't be greedy about things or people that are not yours. And what's he saying? Look, if you're going to live as Christ's man, if we're going to be Christ's men, uh, we've got to be sexually pure. Um, That's not because sex is somehow dirty or evil. It's because it's so precious we need to behave the right way. And gentlemen, the... uh, uh, the damage that is done by sexual sin is, I, I'm lost for words. Um, I've seen, you know, one of the jobs that I, I did in the last few years, a lot of what I had to do was try and sort out the mess that happened when church leaders had done the wrong thing sexually. And that literally tears churches apart, destroys them. And then the other thing you see, when church leaders do that, it destroys churches. When family leaders do it, and God has called the men to lead their families, when men do it, it destroys their families. And I I don't know how many Christian men I've seen now who've, who've kind of been involved in this slow motion train wreck of, of sexual sin. And And none of them... It was never just one, one kind of giant decision. You don't wake up one morning and say, ah, oh, the sun is shining, let's go and commit adultery. It's never like that. It's a thousand little compromises. And you know, don't you? You, you meet her and you, and you connect with her. 
you know, you, your eyes meet and you know that you think, whoa, yeah, wow. And completely innocent right up to that stage. And then you have a choice. Do you seek out her company? Do you, as one book I read, talked about public lingering? Do you deliberately spend time with her and, and so on and then the snowball rolls down the hill and gets bigger and faster and public lingering becomes private lingering, becomes rationalising and becomes the slow motion train wreck. And it happens again and again. Now you may be thinking, well no, it's not going to happen to me because I'm, I'm uh, much too mature as a Christian, I know too much, it, won't, it couldn't happen to me. You know what? I bet King David thought that too as he wandered around the roof of his palace in the afternoon when he should have been somewhere else. He's walking around in his Hugh Hefner smoking jacket and kind of thing and looking down and sees Bathsheba and, yeah. And, you know, that's the most, I think, probably in the whole of the Old Testament, that's the most troubling story. If you haven't read it lately, it's, uh, you know, there in the book of Kings. You might like to, no, uh, yeah, in Kings, 1 Kings, you might like to read it. Why is it so troubling? And that is, I think, did David really think he was going to get away with it? He, he commits adultery with this woman, kills her husband, marries her, and it's like, what? Do you think God didn't see? Like, hadn't he read Psalm 139? Um, you know, uh, where can I go to, you know, sorry, if I ascend to the heavens, uh, you're there. If I cross to the other side of the ocean, you're there. Wherever I go, Lord, you're there, you're with me. Well, did he not, had he not read that? I'll tell you what's troubling. I went and looked up Psalm 139. He didn't just read it. He wrote it. He wrote it. And he still did this. Why? Do you remember he said, your old nature is deceitful. Is deceitful. And so, gentlemen, let me ask you, don't say a name out loud. It would be fairly awkward. If you were going to commit adultery, who would it be with? If you have a name in your head, you already have a problem. You got that? If a name popped into your head then, you already have a problem. 1 Corinthians 6 says, run. Flee from sexual immorality. Don't bargain with it. Don't rationalise it. Run away from it. Because I'll tell you something, it always, always, always ends in tears. In fact, um, the Apostle Paul talks about the way that we should speak about sex as well. Um, 5 verse 4, he says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. He's saying, don't tell filthy jokes about sex. Uh, Literally what it is, is moros logos, moron talk, okay? No moron talk about sex. Um, Now, you, you can't stop someone telling you a dirty joke, Okay? Uh, and if it's funny, you can't stop laughing, all right? You can't hold... All right. But we, you don't have to kind of pass them on. Why? Why? I don't mean... I'm not being a prude, and that's this. Why not tell jokes about this? You, you wouldn't let someone tell filthy jokes about your mum, would you? Why? Well, your mum's special and kind of pure and wonderful. And that's, that's what sex is as well. It's this kind of wonderful, intimate, shared, special thing that's enjoyed between a man and his wife and, and people that trash it and devalue the currency just, just don't get it. All right? 
What's the proper response? You see, I like this, end of, end of 5 verse 4. He says, no, 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 no foolish joking, whatever, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. So when it comes to sex and so on, thank you, Jesus. That's not hard to be thankful, is it? Um, Jesus thought it up. Uh, he told Paul to write 1 Corinthians 7 where, uh, where we're told that married couples have authority over each other's body and it's their duty to meet each other's sexual needs. It's the husband's duty to, um, to meet his wife's sexual needs. And you might be thinking, yeah, I know, I report for duty more often than she wants me there. Um, uh, yes, gentlemen, that's true. But if you meet her emotional needs, she'll meet your physical needs. I know that's a, that's a one sentence on a complicated topic, but that's what it's about. God's designed it very carefully. Now, thankfulness. But you see what he says in 5 verse 5, don't be deceived. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, and I think it's in the area of sexuality, could be wider, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God saying it's this area of impurity and sexual sin and so on, it'll poison your relationship with Jesus. Um, you know, as the Apostle Paul wrote this, he was in a world uh, where the pagan religions um, embraced religious prostitution. So to be religious in those days was to go and have sex with a pagan prostitute or whatever, and it was supposed to be the fertility gods. Or You imagine what a plague that was for the men in Corinth or Ephesus or whatever it was who were trying to live pure lives and, and that is the, uh, is the culture that they're living in. It must have been a plague for them. But, you know, gentlemen, we, we have our own modern-day plague, don't we? And that is pornography. They didn't have it so much in the first century, but we've got it now. And the porn industry is huge and it's growing all the time. Um, I haven't got the figures with me, but it's, it globally, it's worth billions. And each time there's a step forward in communication or technology, the sex industry is kind of the first industry to grab hold of it. And so what's happened, I mean, in the, um, uh, in the 30-something years since I was a teenager, the whole pornography, pornography thing has gone from kind of us um, getting hold of the tattered old porno magazine and passing it around as schoolboys would to... Um, from, from the magazine to the, the video movies to the DVD things to the... And it used to be to see the really hardcore stuff. You had to go to those weird little cinemas that are painted all one colour and have no windows and, you know, guys with raincoats and sand shoes. But now it's... Well, the internet means it's instant, it's endless, it's private. And you have it in your pocket with your iPhone. It's everywhere. And in this room, uh, there are men who are tempted by it. I know there's at least one, because I am. And in this room, there will be men who struggle with it and who, who struggle alone. And, and let me talk to you as a... As a a fellow traveller, um, about this. And we need to learn to talk to each other about it, gentlemen, uh, because this thing thrives on secrecy. 
and it's a secrecy that kills the Christian lives and emotional lives of men. Okay, so as a brother, gently, caringly, let me, let me talk to you about this. Um, uh, what I want to do, if you can say, is, is, is actually undress porn and let me show you the ugly side of it and what it's all about, okay? Now, what does pornography promise? It promises excitement, okay? I'll see her and she'll take off a clothes, you know, like it promises excitement and it promises power. I'll get to choose this, you know, right? and it promises intimacy, just me and her, right? And yet, what does it deliver? It delivers none of that. In fact, it delivers uh, emotional deadness and emptiness. It kills you emotionally. Um, it's power, it, it, it makes you powerless. I mean, hunched over in the dark in front of a computer screen, hoping that your wife won't walk in, is hardly a kind of a powerful thing to be, is it? All right. And, it, and it, what it delivers is ever-decreasing levels of excitement and that's why guys get drawn into more and more kind of hardcore stuff because it never actually delivers. In fact, what it is, what pornography is, is emotional junk food. It's when the tank is empty and you want this cheap hit that you, that you go there and want this kind of emotional junk food hit. Now, how does it work? Well, it works the same way as junk food. I remember, you know, I, I live in Sydney and I'm, I'm, I'm driving home from some boring denominational meeting. Well, that's a tautology, really, isn't it? Um, I, I'm driving home from some denominational meeting late at night and I'm kind of a bit hungry and I'm driving past McDonald's and, I'm, you know, I think, okay, do I go to McDonald's? Yeah, it'll be all right. I'll just order a salad, you know? And um, so I, I pull into the car park and then I walk in, it's like 10 o'clock at night, and I think, a salad? Nah, forget that. Let's go for the four main food groups. Salt, fat, caffeine, and sugar, all right? Yeah! And kind of rah, 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 eat it all the way down there. And then I walk out, and I think, oh, man, why did I do that? Now, that, that's the way the pornography works. It offers all of this, but it delivers none of it. And afterwards, you know, what do you do? You, well, you feel disgusted with yourself, and it'll never happen again. Is that... why, is it, why is it evil? And how does it work? Um, what, see, it, you, need to, you need to think this through to see why it is. I remember I, went, um, I was out at uh, um, a little, little country town in western New South Wales called Ningen, tiny little town, and uh, we're getting petrol or something. I was out there on a shooting trip um, staying on a mate's farm, and we're getting petrol, and there was an old bloke in a shed there, and he had these um, fox skins all around the... Uh, well, it must have had I don't know, 20, 30 fox skins, something like that. And um, I said, mate, did you shoot all these? He said, ah, oh, no, no, I didn't shoot any of them. I said, well, how, like, they didn't die of old age. What's going on? And, and he, he pulled out this little uh, a jar, like a coffee jar, and it had all these little cyanide tablets in it. And he said, this is, what, this is what I do. He said, he'd get a dead kangaroo and drag it along a dirt track, and, um, and then he'd get these cyanide tablets and dip them in condensed milk and just put it on the track along where the dead roo had been. And the foxes would come along, pick up the trail and follow it, come find the sweet thing, eat it and bang, dead on the spot. And that's what pornography is. It is sugar-coated poison. And it's a cumulative poison as well. How is it cumulative? It changes the way that men think about women. Right? It, it poisons you. Um, what it does, it fundamentally, it, it breaks the nexus between sex and intimacy and commitment and engagement. Right? And so it destroys the way that you should think about sex and sexuality. 
it damages the people involved in terms of their health and who they are. And it, it just, it's awful in terms of the industry that it does it to. And you know, gentlemen, they're all someone's little girl. They're all someone's little girl. And it's addictive. Why is it addictive? Because it never emotionally delivers. And you keep looking for the, um, you know, the, the emotion, and it, it never delivers. And it makes you dissatisfied with reality. If you're married, it'll wreck your sex life and your marriage. If you're not married, it'll ruin your expectations uh, of, of what it would be like and so on. Okay? And you know what? I'm still tempted by it. I know all of those things. I've read the books. I know... And I'm still tempted by it. So what do you do? Well, the way the Bible talks about it is this. Within you is a battle going on. Galatians chapter 5, it's there and so on. The old nature and the new nature. Or literally, the old man and the new man. Or as some mates of mine have said, it's like you have the bad tiger and the good tiger within you. Struggling. Which one will get strong? Answer, the one that you feed. You feed the bad tiger, it will eat you. It will make your life a misery. It will kill you emotionally. It will destroy your Christian life. You feed the good tiger or the new man, he'll get strong. So how are you going to starve the old man uh, and so on? So um, it's like the, it's, it's that struggle within you. What you've got to do, if I can say, is work out, if, you, if you're t- tempted like me, is work out when are the times that you are tempted. Um, when, when are the times that you, the tank is empty emotionally and you want that junk food hit? Uh, when are the times when you're most likely to kind of face this or places and times? And then when the good guy's in charge, make the structural decision so that it's not going to happen, right? Or it won't be there and accessible. So um, uh, make, make the structural decisions. The internet's a, a terrible thing, okay, for this. So how do you control that? I remember one guy talking to me and saying, oh, look, um, there's a friend of mine who's a pastor and he's got problems looking at porn on the internet at home. And um, I said, well, get one of those net, net nanny things like, you know, was it Triple X Church or Covenant Eyes? He said, oh, well, he's a bit of a propeller, hat, um, propeller head guy and he knows how to get around those things. I said, oh, well, all right, well, get the internet cut off at home. He said, oh, well, that'd be pretty inconvenient. Jesus says, pluck your eye out if it causes you to sin. That's fairly inconvenient, isn't it? Right? I said, well, are you fair income about it or not? Well, okay, here's what I've done, and I've had a, a writer. One, I haven't walked into a video library for eight and a half years because I realised I'd walk in and look around, and even if I didn't borrow the movies, the dust jackets of all the soft porn stuff were there all over, and, I, and it was no good for me. So... My, my dear sweet wife, Kathy, goes into the video shop and walks around with the mobile phone. Have you seen Die Hard 4? Seen it, I've owned it. Right, oh, give me something else, you know. Like, um, and we, we worked that out. Uh, on the internet, Covenant Eyes. Covenant Eyes costs about $2.50 a week. Um, it's brilliant. What it means is you can go wherever you want on the net and then it sends a report of where you've been prioritised with the bad stuff highlighted to a couple of scary people in your life that you've nominated. So I've got a mate, Tony Willis, who's a scary man, and no one's scarier than my wife, Kathy, and once a month they get the report of where I've been. Temptation gone. Uh, you go to a motel, get the, free, get the pay-for-view movies disconnected before you walk in the room. There's all sorts of stuff like that. You can work it out. I've got the internet disabled on my iPhone and so on. Uh, get the new man to take away the temptations for the old man. 
when you're feeling vulnerable and so on. Now, don't feed the bad tiger. What do you do? Feed the, feed the new man. What is it the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4.8? He says this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if anything is excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Fill your mind and your heart with stuff that's good. Why? Three quick reasons and I'm done. One, he says, don't be deceived, this matters. See 5 verse 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Look, there's free and full forgiveness for you. I'm not, don't, I'm not trying to put you... Come back, get forgiven, get this sorted out. You can be forgiven. But continued unrepentant sin, it, drags you, it, it, it poisons your walk with the Lord. Okay? Two, it's just not worth the pain, gentlemen. God doesn't say stay away from this because he wants to spoil our fun. It's because there's a world of pain there. He says stay away from it. it it'll cripple your life. It'll make you feel guilty. It'll damage your marriage or your potential marriage. And if you're single, it just revs the engine in neutral. And you know that's no good for you. And thirdly, it actually gets in the way of knowing God and will stop you becoming like Jesus. Tomorrow night, we'll... Keep going. Keep thinking about what will it look like to be Christ's man. How about we pray? Our Father, we, we pray, please, that for any of the men here who aren't yet followers of the Lord Jesus, that you might open our eyes to see who he is, to see our need of forgiveness and of the, the great forgiveness and victory that he won at such huge cost. We ask, please, that we might all come to know forgiveness and joy through serving him. And for those of us who do know him, Father, we thank you for forgiveness. Thank you that your spirit is at work in our lives. Please renew us to be men who honour the Lord Jesus so that we might be men who, rather than lie, tell the truth. Men who deal with anger and make it gentleness. Men who are honest in speech. Men rather than gossip, who be men that, that lift others up with our words. That rather than malice, we might understand forgiveness rather than unclean hearts, we may be able to be pure. Father, please help us to be men who honour the Lord Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen.